Hello, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Alexis Clark, and I'm joined by Steve Sonier. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Susan Brumby on our program. Dr. Brumby is the founding director of the National Center for Farmer Health, an innovative partnership between Western District Health Service and Deakin University, Australia. She leads the implementation of key strategies to improve the health, well-being, and safety of farm men and women, blending both a theoretical and practical understanding of agriculture, health, management, and rural communities. She was awarded a Victorian Traveling Fellowship to the USA and EU, looking at farmer health and decision-making, and has presented both locally and internationally on farmer health. She is also a clinical professor in the Faculty of Health at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks, um, and great to be here. Let's start off with your path. What has your public health career path looked like? My path has been quite unusual. I started originally uh, doing a primary teaching course. didn't last very long there. I then went and did my nursing course at uh, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is a very large hospital in Melbourne. I completed that. I had always actually wanted to farm growing up, uh, but was told early on that that really wasn't a career suitable for girls. My headmistress told me to get out of her office that I needed to find a career much more suitable for girls. And I think, you know, that stays with you. I was in year nine when that, when, when that's what I was told. So I did a traditional, you know, primary teaching or nursing. Um, I then, uh, did my midwifery in a smaller rural hospital and I really, really liked mid. I guess what was important at that time is I, I uh, did have parents on a farm, so I happened to meet my husband on a weekend home to the farm who was a, a vet, and we fell very quickly in love and married six months later, and we uh, settled actually in a rural area. So I was nursing in a small rural hospital and also doing kidney dialysis, and went and purchased a small farm myself with the help of my mum actually and ran that really successfully and during that time while we were in that small community I undertook wool classing and I completed my diploma of farm management by external studies. I also had three children during this time and we were I mean we were really busy it was you know sort of 20, late 20s by this stage, early 30s. And I think at that time while I was working in the hospital, I was seeing a lot of issues that farming people were coming into our small rural hospital and obviously kidney dialysis. Um, we were really fortunate to be doing that. Otherwise, people needed to travel over 100 kilometres to get dialysis. So that was important for the rural community. But people that were dying of heart attacks, suicides, uh, that had um, undiagnosed cancers for too long. And these were rural people, farming people, and, of course, horrific farm accidents. From the farming side, clearly I was witnessing and being involved in practices where you could clearly see why there was this discrepancy with health here 
and agriculture over here um, with very different needs and wants around health, well-being and safety. I completed my Masters of Health Management and during that time I had at this stage moved on and managed our family farm for 12 years but I got asked to go back into health and set up another sort of program for more primary care services, so taking away acute beds and replacing those funds with primary care services. And some of that was around pharma health, some of it was around healthy ageing, women's health, men's health, arthritis groups, you know, more health promotion type of work for the community and community groups and advocacy. And I really, really enjoyed that work. And then ultimately I completed my master's and came back to Hamilton, which was a larger health service in the position of director of community services. Now, what is important here is bringing my farming skills together and my health management. I now understood sort of policy, how things work, had the agricultural skills, had the nursing skills. I applied for funding from an agricultural group called the Rural Industries Research Development Corporation, which was a federal funded body. And they provided us funding to set up a program called the Sustainable Farm Families. And this was a really big thing for a couple of what reasons. One was, here's a health service actually receiving funds from an agricultural funded body. It was also a big turnaround for the health service to be purely focusing on farming people. And it also brought together a lot of key players in terms of the Farmers Federation, universities, health services, farmer benchmark group, industry bodies like Meat and Livestock Australia, Dairy Australia, Wool Australia at the time. And that program was incredibly successful. So that was our sort of baseline foundation program. And that was really, I guess, the bit that brought it all together about farmer health, well-being and safety, whether you're from an agricultural lens or whether you're looking at it from a a health and a policy lens for that matter. And that's kind of how that started. The success of Sustainable Farm Families then led me to another uh, overseas study program in 2013 when I did come to the University of Iowa and stayed for six, eight weeks there. And I have very fond memories of that. So that was my second visit. And that kind of allowed me to further develop up our National Centre for Pharma Health, which is based in Victoria, receives Victorian funds predominantly, but now has a team of over 13 staff. That's all an amazing accomplishment right there. And it's fantastic to hear about that, especially hearing your wonderful time in Iowa. You know, we always hope that folks enjoy their time while they get to visit us. And I loved it. With that in mind, you know, when you're comparing the education side of things, you talked a lot about the holistic measures that are in play and then also the specifics of farming culture as a whole. When you're looking at the public health education aspects of things, do you think that there are specific benefits from the way you were trained and when you went into practice, how you were prepared in Australia? I think what I have really discovered and I find still quite concerning is if you're looking at, I guess, farming in rural populations, 
or agricultural populations, there is a lack of what I call cultural competence for people to work properly or successfully with farming populations and agricultural workers. Whilst my training brought the two together, I don't think there's no set way or there hasn't been any set way of bringing them together and recognising them as a special skill set. So I'm sure it's almost the same in Iowa and the US, but your number of fatalities, the rate of fatalities and injuries on farm would still be the highest I would expect in, in the US. There's certainly the highest rate still in Australia. And they're also sort of hidden too because often farmers don't necessarily get picked up by hospitals. They're not necessarily recorded properly on a database or through workplace injury because they often don't have any insurance. So they're very hard to get a, a real sense of unless they've died. And then, of course, we do know that the rate of death on I don't see a great effort being made to educate people in public health to address the specifics of agricultural populations. And despite all our best intentions, I think at best we're probably just a tiny little ripple on a massive lake that really needs to be getting a tsunami happening across the lake, really. I think we, we run an agricultural health and medicine course. Now we have about 20 students a year that come through. I know the University of Iowa ran the seminal ag health pro, uh, course, which I did come over and do as well, uh, and has really made inroads. I think that for me was a pivotal change in how I, I saw the world. So I have tried to replicate that and certainly the University of Iowa has always been really supportive and helpful when we've had issues around that area. I think we need to really push strongly to make sure anyone doing rural education, rural medicine, rural nursing needs to have that qualification. I definitely agree with your aspect on the regulation of having an education requirement. In your opinion, what are the greatest public health needs in your region specifically? Yeah, I, I sat up and discussed this with my husband actually last night. Um, in our region specifically, we are an agricultural hub, but we have quite a few uh, homeless people. We have domestic violence, family violence, a small number but growing multicultural uh, populations coming in. Um, so I, I really decided I wasn't really sure. In terms of public health, you know, I could say we need more bicycle trails. You know, people need to be getting encouraged to go out. Public transport is, isn't good. So if we want to go to Melbourne, you have to be on the bus at half past six and it only goes twice a day, it's five hours down. You can't get home till 11 o'clock at night. A lot of people can't manage that. It's just too too big a day you know we we have a high rate of vaccination here people are you know so we do a lot of things well so we have really big programs at the moment to um, make the healthy choice the easy choice so for example where I work at Western District Health Service we've completely banned all sugary drinks we've completely banned um, 
any food that has added salt or sugar uh, and isn't green on a traffic light. So you can't ever, you can't buy a chocolate bar, you can't buy any lollies, you can't even buy something that's amber on a chocolate, you know, an occasional food. It's all healthy food. And that's been amazing to see that come in. If you want salt, you know, you need to bring your own salt to work. If you felt like a can of Coke, you have to hide it. It's been really effective in changing us. Yeah. So like, there's lots of things happening and lots of needs. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of really exciting things. And, and yeah, I, I think that it's always hard to get those behavioral changes underway for everyone. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a constant struggle. Yeah. And of course, I haven't mentioned mental health. That's the other, other big one as well for us. On that point of mental health and the agricultural side of things, it's a big point here too that we focus on a lot and how that interplays with the rest of our sectors of society, right? Because we rely a lot on our farming communities here, but mm -hmm. I think that we often overlook the mental health concerns of these communities or, or other situations that crop up very commonly, but are not paid enough attention to. In your efforts right now, how does that kind of evolve as a whole? Are you able to pay attention to those kind of missed concerns at times or give them more of a spotlight or how does that play out? We have, we have researched and developed some services. So um, we've done a work um, around the ripple effect, which uh, looked at, it was focused mainly on male suicide, but it, of people with lived experience sharing their stories um, and that also worked looking at the level of literacy around suicide and stigma. And when we started, I guess, you know, there's a lot of work on mental health at the moment or contemporary work that suggests that if you lift the literacy of people around mental health, you're going to have better outcomes for mental health. So that was kind of what we went into that research project thinking that if we were going to lift people's literacy around stigma of suicide, that that would help. What we discovered was the um, baseline measures for that validated tool was much lower than when we worked with our cohort across Australia around suicide stigma. So that was quite a surprise. In fact, they had such a high level of literacy around suicide and suicide stigma that we couldn't have made any difference to it. Like it was incredibly high. So what that did say to us is that it's actually not the literacy. Rural people have a high level of literacy around particularly suicide and stigma. So whatever um, intervention you're going to put in there, it's not about raising literacy around that it may be around developing better behavioral practices and getting people to adopt them but it's not the literacy so that was really interesting and we've done some also some work with um, UKE in Germany around some of that work uh, with their rural population we're also doing quite a lot um, around co-design with uh, farmers and uh, agricultural industry and that too has been interesting watching that unfold around the time that takes to co-design and really allow people to freely share their opinions about 
where they want things to go. This is a project looking at, at safety and mental health on farms and the, uh, trying to help people stay safe as well as look after their mental health. We have the traditional programs, you know, we have the support programs, we have online um, access to psychologists, we have an extensive book called Living with Stress on the Farm, all those kind of things. Um, I'm going tomorrow early out to visit um, 18 farmers and when we we put them through a health assessment, we do a psychological screening as well and can refer people on. So those things are quite well in place, but we still have these these issues with mental health and positive you know well-being and emotional support. How do you guys engage positively with the communities you work with, specifically maybe those with lower socioeconomic status that aren't, you know, in those larger cities or at the university? Where I am, we're 300 kilometres west of Melbourne uh, in a town of around 10,000 people. So our lower socioeconomic are most likely to be, for us and my work, um, are people on farms, smaller farms, family farms that um, may have had someone ill or may have lost someone early, uh, poor succession planning. We also find issues and problems with even, you know, successful farms. Uh, even successful farms have all those challenges of family dynamics and distance to services, etc. The university that I'm associated with is actually 300 kilometres away too. So I don't, our interaction is sporadic, I guess, and, and that does make it a little bit more difficult for us. But by the same token, we're actually out here in the field uh, actually doing real service delivery as well as research. So I think we engage really, really positively with our communities. We have a board structure to make sure we're engaging well with the university and forever kind of being in their ear about farmer health uh, and we certainly advocate very very strongly for our community. I think that's a very good point though about the lived experiences component and I think that really underscores a lot about what we talk about in public health is the need for someone who's been through that situation or who has ties into that community yeah. to be part of implementing those solutions. When you're reflecting on these lived experiences, which of them do you think is most critical? What do you think is the most powerful thing you have in your tool set for connecting with people? I think for me, it has been having walked in their shoes. I certainly farmed for, well, nearly 20 years of my life actively and actually ran the family farm. So I, if people are talking about, you know, pregnancy testing cows, uh, weaners, vaccinations, um, shearing, wool classing, mulesing, um, jetting, um, any of those things, I know what they're talking, feeding out, I, I know what they're talking about. If they're talking about protein levels in grain, I understand all that. I think that's been a, a, a really important advantage. We also try actively to seek people that, to work with us that have farming experience. That's not always possible. Uh, so that does create some difficulties for us because people need to be seen as being relevant. And certainly if you can have a conversation around farming and understand it, that's a big advantage. So I, I think that's been really important measure of success. Our agricultural health and medicine course that we run is probably you know, if I had to hang my hat on one thing that 
I wouldn't want to ever give up. It's probably that. Um, I just, and I think we could do a lot more with it, but it is hard to get that political will. I think that it's hard to get, you know, governments to go, well, this should be a compulsory unit or universities to go, this should be a compulsory unit. So looking at 2020, um, it's been a crazy year all over the world. Specifically, this question pertains just to rural health care, though. What is currently being done to improve rural health care in Australia? And what would you like to see accomplished in the next five years? It's probably a bit like the states. Like we have seven different states and they're all very different. Well, we have uh, recently had appointed a rural health commissioner at a federal level who's very talented woman and, you know, really sort of has the voice of government. Having said that, you're so right. COVID has just changed everything. Um, we haven't had one normal board meeting since February whilst we're just starting now to, to go back to sort of more normal work and just obviously before the Christmas break. Our own centre is very unique in terms of the state of Victoria. It's not replicated in any other state. So various states do different things. In terms of what specifically for rural, we certainly have a lot of programs to try and address the inequity of access between metropolitan and rural people. Certainly COVID has also reinforced the importance of people being able to access healthcare within their communities. And I think this will be an interesting time coming out of COVID because people couldn't travel and uh, were unable. Everything was shut down, elective surgery, everything was stopped. So if you couldn't actually get emergency help if you needed it in your own community um, or it was a long way to travel, it was very, very difficult. I'm thinking about the changes that have undergone our culture in the United States as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And one that I think immediately stands out, at least in the rural side of things, is the reliance on telehealth or on other educative contexts, but specifically in the broadband side of things. You know, we worry a lot about, you know, are people able to access this? Are there issues of equitable deployment? Do you see that happening in Australia too? Is that similar issue faced for rural communities as a whole? Yes, so thank you for raising the telehealth. I've actually had a couple of telehealth appointments myself, which I've, which I'd never had before before COVID. So exactly, so we've had quite a movement towards telehealth. It and the change in politics around that in Australia was significant because previously you weren't able to claim a Medicare. We have a, a nationalised health system, so previously doctors wouldn't have been able to claim for it. Um, and with COVID, they now are. So that I, I don't think they're going to be able to wind that back. So if you want to have a telehealth appointment and your um, doctor is happy to do that, that is now a, a new way of doing that. And that, that, is, that is really big. So I think that will definitely stay changed. For ourselves, we obviously weren't able to see farmers. So we actually developed some telehealth programs and sort of some mentoring coaching programs. And that actually was sort of surprised us. That was really well received too. Um, having said that, we're going out for the first time tomorrow 
and again next week and actually getting back into doing catching up doing some health and lifestyle assessments in person very exciting that is exciting i think we've been a little bit more progressive in getting things back in person in america but we are also unfortunately suffering the consequences of that so what are some of the biggest obstacles farmers are facing today and how does the sustainable farm families program help these families well farm families as i think i mentioned started in around 2003 2004 actually um, as a pilot and farm families itself has probably not had a program run now for 12 months maybe even two years uh, we have emerged into a health and lifestyle assessment program which with maybe a follow-up telephone coaching farm families took a lot of time it was sort of four days over a two-year period so the health and lifestyle assessments are sort of half an hour and then we can follow up by phone or telehealth i think the world has changed so there's a lot more out there around in terms of health literacy people are better at it um, and have higher levels and i think you can now talk about farmer health and legitimately people understand what you're talking about. 20 years ago, people had no idea what we're talking about. So I think that the whole environment has changed, our external environment has changed and we have had an effect on people understanding the importance of pharma health. However, the biggest obstacles um, in terms of farmers still remain access, it still remains late diagnosis there's still a lack of evidence around for example high rates of bowel cancer and higher rates of neurological disorders what is the cause of this we've just i've just had an honors student finish her thesis on chronic kidney disease of unknown origin and her fantastic piece of work has definitely pulled up agriculture and length of time farming as an association with the uh, chronic kidney disease. So there's more work to do in that. If you look at a map of Australia and you see where our hotspots are for kidney disease, they're in rural areas and agricultural areas. So not to the same level as say Sri Lanka or Guatemala or anything, but even so you are seeing that, that difference. So I think there's a lot in terms of access, equity and research, that is still a big gap. And this challenge of not having people properly prepared to work in rural areas, whether they're nurses or doctors or allied health, so people need to understand their community, but also making sure that we're getting the research done as well by people that understand how rural communities and how agriculture works and i think they're the biggest the biggest challenges because it's quite possible to do pretty interesting research that is nonsensical when you apply it into an agricultural context and people don't realize that you're talking about that issue you know one of the most pressing things i think about with this is recruiting folks from these communities or getting the folks interested who are represented in these communities or even bring people to these communities in the first place. We have a lot mm -hmm. of issue, I think here in the United States, and I wonder if about this too in Australia, of, of brain drain of people leaving yes. the rural communities and going into other areas rather than you know, focusing on the needs of those areas that yep. need a lot of help. 
where do you see that field tracking specifically in this area? Because I think this is a very difficult issue to solve of how do we, you know, retain folks who are highly skilled in these areas that need help? Yeah, that is the perennial question. Having said that, our university is now uh, starting from next year, so recruiting now. So they have reserved 30 medical school places for people in our direct footprint. Um, So that is a huge change. And so they say they take 120 per year. First priority are the 30 from reserved spots for around our area. And then to the broader Victorian footprint and then to other rural areas across Australia. So that is a big change. And I think we could definitely see more of those. Obviously, for me, seeing people, more people doing agricultural health and medicine and growing that network of people that have done that, we're actively trying to re-support those people. So when they go back to their health service, one of the challenges is obviously getting your health service to believe doing services for farmers specifically is important um, and we actively advocate for that. So I think there is some things happening and, again, COVID-19 has definitely shown how vulnerable people are in large cities. Uh, Like Melbourne had a much stricter lockdown than we've had in the agricultural communities. Um, I have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. What is one thing you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? Mm. I've been thinking about this question. So there's probably so many. I, you know, I have this great saying, there's no point in having a mind if you're not prepared to change it. So there have been numerous things that I've been wrong about um, and been prepared to change. One of the key things for me was that even if you have the most logical, best evidenced, well-organised program that or research or whatever that just is right, that doesn't mean it's going to be picked up and it doesn't mean it's going to make a difference beyond your piece of work. And the ability to persuade and to get political will is a skill that is just so important and that is very frustrating thing to learn and I guess to be taught that at the end of the day doesn't matter if you've got everything correct and beautifully done doesn't mean that it will get picked up a far less program with someone that can persuade better can win out I think it's a big topic that we see a lot here too, is this idea of, you know, we we can have the best research, we can have a really great plan and everything along those lines, especially when it comes to COVID-19 and our responses towards it. And then things happen and get in the way sometimes, or they take a different direction and it can be frustrating. But I do yeah. love that phrase. The mind phrase is just such a, wow, light bulb in the head kind of thing. Uh, that's a, such a fantastic insight. Yeah. It is good, isn't it? Because it does make, because people um, often, or, and particularly over the years, have been quite gendered about women changing their minds. And I've always been, you know, quite enjoyed being able to say, well, there's not much point in having a mind if you're not prepared to change it, is there? Like, <laughs> so I'm pleased you like that. 
I write quotes in my planner. And honestly, I think that that's one worthy of writing. So thank you so much for enlightening (laughs) us with that one. Pleasure. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Dr. Brumby, thanks so much for coming on our program today. It was a delight to chat with you. It was wonderful to hear about your experiences. You know, we're so glad to be connected with you and and to hear your praises of Iowa too. That's always fantastic. Very, very fond of Iowa. Always, always sing the praises of Iowa. That's it for this week's episode of From the Front Row. Major thanks to our guest, Dr. Susan Brumby, for coming on today. This episode was hosted and written by Alexis Clark and Steve Sanye. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Sanye. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Keep on keeping on out there.